This morning, uh, we're starting a new series. Let me get there. And we're going to look at the Gospel of John. And I'm honestly, uh, I'm quite excited about where this walk through this Gospel will lead us as individuals and as a church and as a community. Uh, As you might know, our, our Bibles have four Gospels in them, four biographies of Jesus in them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, this one, written by John, surprisingly enough, uh, was John was one of the 12 disciples. He's one of Jesus' closest friends and confidants during his time of public ministry. And so this, this is a biography, this is a gospel written by someone who spent years walking and talking with Jesus. John had a front row seat to everything that happened in those years. He was there for the teaching and the explaining afterwards. He was there for the miracles and the discussion that followed the miracles. He was there for the the correction. He was right there for all of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. And so he he captures this three years of ministry and distills it down for us in what we now call the gospel according to John. As he writes, he, he often refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, which I wonder what the other ones thought about that. We'll see him refer to himself that way a number of times through the gospel. But the the important thing for us to take away from that is, if anyone knew Jesus, it was John. If anyone really saw the inner workings of Jesus' life and ministry and all that Jesus was about, it was John. And so this is a, a great gospel, a great biography that we're about to study. This is often the first gospel given to someone who's checking out Jesus or is new to the faith. It's actually in, in some ways quite different from our other three gospels called the, the synoptics. It's different in, in some of the content, different in some of the topics, obviously telling the same story about the same Jesus. It's also a gospel like, that, like we said about James when he went through that letter not too long ago. It's a gospel that we can't get to the bottom of. No matter how many times we read it, there's always something new that the Lord will speak into our hearts. It'll take a a lifetime to mine the depths of all that's here. Again, it happens to be the last of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and it's it's a, a real asset to us as believers, as explorers of faith, as apprentices of Jesus, that we do have four biographies, four Gospels, all written by different people and with different perspectives. If you Maybe this is familiar information, but Matthew's goal when he wrote his gospel was to write to the Jews, to convince the Jews that this is the Messiah, the Messiah that the whole Old Testament and the law and the prophets pointed towards, this is him. Mark is fast-paced, it's quick-hitting, it's all action. He uses immediately more than any other word almost. It's a a gospel that rushes us to Easter week and, and emphasizes Jesus as Son of God and son of man, who came to do powerful things. The gospel of Luke, as, as one pastor described it, is, is kind of the OCD gospel, if you will. Remember, he opens and he says, you know, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. These other guys there, sometimes they jump all over the place, maybe their thoughts are, this one's going to be orderly, most excellent Theophilus. Dr. Luke, who wrote that one, he's, he's very detailed and structured. And then John comes along sometime later, after the others were written, sometime around A.D. 90 or so, 
And some scholars suggest that he wrote this letter as a way to kind of, uh, he saw how those other gospels were being read and, and studied and preached. And it's, it's not like they were inadequate, but it's almost as though John needed to add some clarification, some clarity, some extra instruction on how everything went down and how we are to live in light of those things. So John's writing to bring, bring clarity. And specifically, he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles, everyone about the gospel. And his goal, it's really helpful. He, he may not be Dr. Luke's orderly account, but it's really helpful for us that he actually tells us why he wrote. If you've got uh, the Bible on your phone or in front of you, in John 20, he tells us, he says this, John 20, verse 30. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written. Here's my thesis statement. Here's why I'm writing these things. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. He says, this is enough. Jesus did lots of other things, but this is enough. And so we're going to see as we study this biography is that, that John wrote not just to record what Jesus did, but to clarify who Jesus is. Another way we can say it, another way I heard it said this week is that the, the Holy Spirit guided John and inspired John to write down these words so that with the help of the Spirit, as we read them today, we would see the truth of who God is. And as we, we see the light, which is the language John uses a lot in here, talking about light and darkness, and we'll see that, and that we will we'll see the light that Jesus brought into the world. And as we see that light, our hearts will be open to receive Jesus into our lives. And then as we receive, we would be more able to continue to believe, and more and more as we see. So there's kind of a cycle here. We, we see, we receive, we believe, and we start over and we start to see more, and we receive more, and we believe more. And so we want to ask the Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus for who He is. And, and as we do, we want to receive all the things that He is for us and all the things He's done for us. And as we see and receive and then we believe, we'll, we'll grow more and more in our believing, which will lead us to having life, real life, abundant life. And that's, that's why we've called this series Come and See, because that's the invitation here. And so let me encourage you again to invite someone along for this journey, whether it's in the room on a Sunday morning, whether it's at home in a watch party to gather together, or midweek to re-watch the sermon and work through some discussion together to, to spur one another on and, and pray together as you continue to see and receive and believe. So in light of all that, as we introduce our series in the book of John, there's, there's two things I want to accomplish this morning. The first, I do want to dig into this idea a little bit of what it means to believe. And the second, just really quickly, what does John want us to believe? So kind of an, an overview of the book. Again, John 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, our, our culture loves to talk about belief these days. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that Nike's big shoe campaign was believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Right? Belief is, is kind of a buzzword these days. And the danger is when we start to use the word more and more and more, it actually ends up losing its meaning, doesn't it? Uh, love might be another example of this. I love chicken wings. You know, I love my kids. 
Love my, like, that's a very broad, generic word. So we need to be kind of careful about what we mean when we use some of these words. And our culture in the West here, even though we, we may say we don't believe in something, we actually do celebrate belief. There is a contemporary spirituality that celebrates not necessarily a belief in a person or an object or a religion, but belief in belief, which is interesting. One writer commented on this idea this way. Our culture says it doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe as long as you do believe. Now, a couple, uh, in the last couple of years, I'd suggest we even start to maybe move beyond that point to the point where we not only have to believe but we do actually have to believe the right things about the right issues in the right way. But John, in this gospel, doesn't call us to belief in belief. He doesn't call us to faith in faith alone, but he goes way deeper and gets personal and specific. And so in just 21 chapters, John is going to lay out for us the answers to three questions. What do we need to believe? What does it mean to believe? And why do we need to believe? So let's look at those kind of quickly one by one. What do we need to believe? Well, we read those kind of summary statement verses of John from John chapter 20 twice now, and and he says in there two things we need to believe. First, that that Jesus is the Christ, and second, that Jesus is the Son of God in verse 31. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, maybe you you know this. I suspect many of you do, but Christ isn't isn't a last name. He's not Jesus Christ. His mom was Mary Christ, and his dad was Joseph Christ. But Christ is a title. It's a synonymous title with Messiah, a term that has its root in the Old Testament. And so much of that that Older Testament, the Old Testament, focuses on the one called Messiah that God would send. And so the expectation among the Jewish people had been building for century upon century upon century that this Messiah would come. God was sending someone, this Messiah, And so even as we read John, we see the expectation in the culture that Jesus walked into. The people were waiting for the Christ, the Messiah. Pastor and commentator Matt Carter helpfully writes, when John identifies Jesus as the Christ, he's not saying a person just needs to acknowledge that Jesus is the one called Messiah, but that one must believe that Jesus is the one who will fulfill all the promises God made to his people. See, I think that changes the way we look at Jesus a little bit. Sometimes I think maybe we can, we can stumble and just say, okay, Jesus is the Christ. Okay, I, I can believe that, but maybe we don't really dig into what that means. What does it mean that he is the Christ? What does it mean that he is the Messiah? It means that Jesus is a promise keeper. Really quickly, some of the promises Jesus fulfilled. In Genesis 3, mankind had just sinned against God and Adam and Eve were learning about the consequences of the sin. And in the midst of that, God promises to send a son that would fix everything sin had broken. In Psalm 2, the psalmist promises that that the Christ, the Messiah, will end injustice and rebellion. In Isaiah 53, there's a promise of the suffering servant, that God's servant, the Christ, would be perfectly righteous. He would never sin, but he would be punished and killed. And he would willingly offer his perfect life as a payment of your sin and my sin. And in Daniel 7, we we see this vision of one who looks like a son of man, who who comes before God, and, and God gives him a kingdom that never ends. And so to say that Jesus is the Christ is a huge, massive statement. 
and believing in this and believing that Jesus is the one who will fix everything that is broken. It's, it's believing that Jesus is the one that will end oppression and injustice, who will reign forever as King and Lord, the one who, who willingly gave his life so that we who are guilty can be forgiven and reconciled back to God. He can heal our hearts, like that song said. So we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The second, we also have to believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the twofold claim that we'll see throughout John, that Jesus is Messiah, but he's also God. Because only someone divine could fulfill all those promises from the Old Testament. Only someone divine can be trusted with absolute power. It doesn't take a big look around the globe to see absolute power, as they say, corrupts absolutely. Only someone divine could, could be trusted with that absolute power and, and absolute authority that was promised to the Messiah. And only someone divine could be the perfect once-for-all sacrifice and payment for sin in the world. See, if Jesus wasn't divine, if he wasn't the Son of God, if he wasn't God himself, he could not be the Messiah. He could not be the promise keeper. And second question, what does it mean to believe? Again, as we said, believe is one of those words that gets used so many ways. I believe that winter's a long way off yet. Right? Uh, I can say that, you know, I, I believe that's true, and it might be something that I hope is true, but I have no idea. But when John uses the word here, it comes from the Greek word pistuo, which means something very specific. It means to trust or to put one's faith into something. And so just as to, to believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, means it, it, it means more than just intellectual in assent. It's more than just saying, okay, I understand some facts, I'll, I'll go with those facts until something better comes along. It's trusting your whole self into him, into who Jesus said he was and what he was sent to do. Just a really, I don't think it's a silly example, but maybe a lighthearted example. Lately, I've seen a lot of people posting pictures of the Black Shale Suspension Bridge in Kananaskis. I think we've got a picture of it here. Now, I can stand right here on the safety of the firmish ground in the building and I can look at that bridge and I can say, yep, that would probably hold me. But until I step onto that thing, I'm not really believing, as John uses the word, that it will hold me. Right? The, the belief that John's talking about, it adds trust to the equation. See, John didn't write this gospel just so that we could know more facts about Jesus. He wrote this gospel so that we could know facts about who Jesus is and what he was sent to do, and then in response, trust him completely. The third question, why do we need to believe? One of the, the key themes in John's gospel is, is our need for life. And John always connects life with the person of Jesus. Just a few verses, select verses we'll get to as we walk through this gospel. Uh, today's even, in chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of man. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Later in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Anyone who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, the, the life that we need, the life that we were created for, the, the spiritual, eternal life comes through belief in Jesus. And this, 
to kind of go a little bit further here, this isn't just a transaction either. It's not where we say we, we believe in Jesus and Jesus drops off life at the front door next to the latest Amazon package. Right? This is, this is uh, different than that. Life in Christ, belief in Christ is, is, I think, best illustrated by adoption. And I trust that, that many of us can picture a family who has adopted a child. Maybe you're considering it yourself as well. But when a, when a child is adopted, it's not just a legal piece of paper that took however long to get sorted out through the court system. See, the, the real meaning of adoption is now that child is brought into relationship with a family that is now his own family. That child's existence is now tied to the existence of this family. They sleep in the same house. They sit and eat meals together. They celebrate holidays together. All these things. See, adoption is not just an exchange of goods and services or, or exchange of, you know, my belief for eternal life, but adoption is a new relationship. And so our life with Jesus is not just a transaction. It's a new relationship. It's being drawn into eternity with Jesus. Jesus illustrates this, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, using the image of vine and branches as well. See, the, the branch of a tree or the branch of a vine doesn't just get one burst of energy from the, the plant and then go off on its own, does it? It's connected daily, every moment, to the source of everything it needs. That's what we need. And so when we believe, we, we truly begin to live. And that's what John means when he's writing about belief. Okay, now that we've kind of got the thesis of the gospel sorted out here that he's saying we want you to, John's saying, I'm writing this so that you'll believe and you'll have life. Let's get back to the beginning, our verses for this morning. John 1, 1 through 5. This is how John opens the letter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that is made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome us. Now, in these opening words, we're going to come back to what it means that Jesus was word in the coming weeks as well. But in these opening couple of verses, John's going to try and set out for us the answer to two questions. Who is Jesus? And why did he come? It wasn't too long ago that, that Time magazine uh, asked the question on the, on the cover of their magazine, who is Jesus? And inside they asked a bunch of other questions like how should we understand Jesus? Did he just kind of stroll out of the wilderness 2,000 years ago and, and preach this gentle message of peace and brotherhood? Or, or was he an advocate of revolution? When did Jesus know that his mission would end up with him on the cross? Did Jesus actually think he was God? Did he understand himself to be God and man? These are all important, great questions that we need to understand. Yet we're living in a culture that is increasingly spiritual, but increasingly hostile to the idea that there is an answer to these questions, that there is one absolute truth. And so to many, Jesus was just a philosopher. To others, he was a good man who said some good things. And to others, yet he was a prophet pointing us to God. And so that's why these opening verses of this gospel are so important. They answer these questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? The first three verses, John 1, 1 to 3, answer who is Jesus. The Bible is clear that Jesus of Nazareth is more than a moral teacher, more than a philosopher, more than a good man, but Jesus is God. And right out of the gate, John gives Jesus the title, The Word. And it's 
So it's really important for us to consider the other places where this title, where the Word of God is described. Again, just, just a few because there's several. In Psalm 33, we read this. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Genesis 1, 3, and God said with his words, let there be light and there was light. Psalm 107, verse 20, he says he, he sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from the pit. And so God in the Old Testament and coming now into the New Testament reveals his power and his will through his word which means there is no greater revelation of the character and nature of God. There's no better picture of who God is and, and what he's like than the person of Jesus. A.W. Pink helpfully notes for us that, that Jesus reveals God's mind. He expresses God's will. He displays God's perfections. And Jesus exposes for us God's heart. And yeah, look at those, those first words, the beginning of verse 1. In the beginning. Now those, when you hear that, do they sound like maybe we've heard them before? Anyone think of where that might be? Genesis. I see a couple nods. Of thank you for calling out. I'm starting to get hot up here. Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what's John doing here? Again, the writers in the Bible, they don't waste any words. They don't just, he didn't accidentally write in the beginning. See, John is connecting Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, with creation. John's actually claiming that Jesus existed before creation. He existed before the world began, before there was time, which is really important because not everyone believes that. But Jesus himself also made this claim, and we'll see it in a few weeks when we get to John 17. And Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Note as well that in Genesis 1.1, it doesn't give us any hint that God was ever created. And so similarly, here in John 1.1, there is no hint that Jesus was ever created. And that's what sets Jesus apart from every other so-called God. He has always existed. Matt Carter again helpfully says this, Jesus shares his nature and being with God. The Word was God. He is of the same character and quality as God. Everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus Christ. We, we call this the Trinity, the understanding that there is one God, but that one God exists as three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 1, we find a precisely worded statement about Jesus that leads us to only one conclusion. Jesus Christ is God. Look again at verse 3. John writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that is made. So since Jesus is God, he was not only present at creation, but he was also active at creation. One commentator also notes here that John chose a specific word for, for all things in that verse, in verse 3, to turn our focus to every individual thing. There are words that John could have used to just mean everything, just kind of a blanket everything, but the word John chose points to every individual thing. So we could say there was not one tree, one mountain, one bug, one person, one animal, one anything that was made that he wasn't a part of. Similarly, as we opened our service with, Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For by him, 
All things were created. All things. Let me tell you where they are. In heaven, on earth, visible things, invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all these things were created through him and for him. That's who Jesus is. The second question that John wants to answer right out of the gate is, why did Jesus come to earth? Verses 4 and 5. He writes, In him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, John's answer to this question is twofold. Why did Jesus come? He came as light, and he came as life. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that without Jesus, we are all dead in our sin. And so what does that mean? Well, well death is, is fundamentally a separation. So when, when we die, the spiritual part of a person, the soul of a person, is separated from the physical part of that person, the body. So physical death is a separation of soul and body. But spiritual death that Paul talks about, that John's alluding to here, is a separation of soul from God. See, we can be physically alive and yet spiritually separated from God in the here and now. And the terrifying thing is that, that with our physical death, that separation of our souls from God can be made permanent. We will always be separated from God. But Jesus came to give life. He came to reconcile us to God, to close that separation both here and now and also in the future. Jesus came so that we would no longer be cut off due to our sin as an enemy of God, but instead we'd be welcomed into the family and adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, that Jesus has taken God's judgment on our rebellion, our sin, this separation that we have chosen, and his victory over Satan, sin, and death have become ours. See, really, kind of succinctly, a Christian is someone who is dead to sin but now has life because of Jesus. A Christian is someone who was, who was cut off from God because of sin, but has now been reconciled and drawn back to God. A Christian is someone who is a, a spiritual corpse, but now has the life of God flowing through them. So why did Jesus come to earth? He came to call people from death to life, to a, a living, vibrant relationship with God through faith in him. The second metaphor John uses here, and we'll see it again throughout his gospel, is Jesus bringing light into the darkness. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, the people were walking in darkness, and they have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. We'll soon read Jesus say, listen, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, this gospel is, it says that we have now a way that, that there's... Let me start again. The gospel is that we no longer have to wonder how to deal with sin and brokenness. That we no longer have to be dark and, and, and not knowing how we can be made whole again. How can we be reconnected with the one who made us? Because Jesus came to light that path back to God. And so in the following chapters of this this gospel, we're going to see an ongoing battle between light and darkness. Jesus is the light of the world, and he is, he is opposing, and he is being opposed by those who are in darkness. And at the end, near the end of the story, we'll watch as Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's arrested by Roman soldiers. He's brought to trial. He's beaten and whipped and ultimately crucified like a common criminal. And then his lifeless corpse is taken down and put in a cold, dark tomb. And if we stopped there, if we stopped at the end of chapter 19, we could say to John, John, you are wrong. Jesus was not God. He did not bring life because he ended up dead like every other person. But then we get to chapter 20. 
And we find Jesus three days later not dead in a tomb anymore, but alive and having conquered death. Chapter 1, verse 5, John writes for us, remember, the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. One last thing before we celebrate the resurrection with communion. I should have mentioned that earlier. If you're at home, we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Uh, I don't know how much you like studying grammar, and I often don't, but sometimes these things just jump out, and it's just too good. Look at those words in verse 5 if you've got it in front of them. And if you've got a like, paper Bible, you might want to circle some of these things. There are two kind of main verbs in verse 5. And John says, look, the light shines in the darkness. This is present tense. The light was shining when John wrote this. The light still shines today. The light is continually shining. Look at the next phrase. The darkness did not overcome it. That is a completed action. There is no doubt in how this is going to end. It's done. The darkness did everything it could to stop that light from shining, but it did not overcome it. No matter what, as we're going to see, the light's going to shine. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent Jesus, your word, to to come and walk this earth, to show us what it means to be truly human, and yet to perfectly reflect you as well. And so in just a moment, as we we take uh, the cup and the bread and we celebrate that all that Jesus has done for us, we want to say thank you, Jesus, that you are Son of God, that you have come to be the promise keeper, the one that fulfilled all the hopeful promises of the Old Testament. They've all come true in you, Jesus. And we thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.